Welcome to Medieval Islamic Medicine. In this episode, we look at the role of medical practitioners in society and the institutions and environment in which they practiced. We have seen a bit about medical theory, medical practice, medical innovation, but one of the central questions is how did all this medical knowledge, whether theory or practice, work within societies? I mean, who were the doctors? How did you become a doctor? Those are real questions and they will help us to understand uh, how medical uh, knowledge, so to speak, developed, was deployed within its uh, societal framework. Uh, now, how did you become a, a doctor? There are basically two fundamental avenues open to anybody who wants to learn any subject. Either you study it by yourself or you study it with some, somebody else. And for the medieval Islamic period, we have some famous cases of medical autodidacts. Uh, so one is Avicenna or Ibn Sina, who dies in 1037, a very famous physician who wrote the Canon of Medicine, which became a canonical book, not only in the East, but also in the West. Uh, and he says that he learned medicine by himself, mastered medicine by the age of 16, you know, because it was a very easy subject and he could do it all and everybody was coming to see him. Now, he says these things in his autobiography and some scholars have questioned uh, some of these elements are in, uh, in the story of how he learned medicine, how he came to master the subject. And other scholars have, have questioned um, his, his practical experience. He was a great uh, theoretician, but maybe he wasn't such a great practitioner. But anyhow, this aside, so we, in theory, you could, uh, could be medical autodidact. There's another case of somebody about we know Ibn Ridwan. He lived in Cairo in the early 11th century. He learned, as he says, medicine by himself because he didn't have the money to study it with somebody else. Uh, and he certainly became a prominent figure. So if he couldn't afford to study medicine because he didn't have the money, that means, obviously, some people studied with a physician in some sort of apprenticeship context and they obviously, in certain cases, paid money for the privilege of being an apprentice of a famous physician. So apprenticeship, if you study with somebody else, apprenticeship is, uh, is, is one possibility open to you. Now there's something else which one, which one calls majlis or majalis. So these majlis means session or basically some sort of sitting around. And we hear about people, about people having circles, so to speak, of pupils, they kind of lecture or explain a text and students sit there and um, they would listen or they would uh, maybe ask questions and uh, would study medicine in, in this way. The other important element of which we know is, uh, is clinical, clinical studies or, well, students uh, gaining clinical experience by following a physician who, for instance, practices in a hospital. Now we'll talk about hospitals later, but uh, hospitals uh, in 10th century Baghdad had become important centers of medical teaching, of clinical teaching. So this is another element. Now the question obviously um, arises, well if you study medicine either as an apprentice or within a hospital or uh, with somebody else, uh, well how how did you get a diploma? Or was there something like, uh, well nowadays we have the British Medical Council and they say you're a doctor and you're not. You pass the test, they have a canon of medical knowledge, so you have to learn certain books and pass certain exams and know certain things. And if you master this body of knowledge, this canon, then you're a doctor. 
And if you don't master it, then you won't be a doctor. And one is you have to master a body of knowledge, and the other thing is you have to adhere to certain ethical standards. Now, in the medieval Islamic world, it's very difficult because of the sources. Now, there's a lot of ethical literature, literature on what we call medical deontology, how the doctor should behave. From the 9th century onwards, we have manuals, uh, and they paint a picture of doctors having to master a canon of medicine, and this canon is often the canon which we've accounted before, these Greek medical classics, Hippocrates, Galen, Paul of Vagina sometimes, and certain other texts uh, written by Muslim physicians very much in the vein of this Greek, uh, Greek medical tradition. So there's like this, this canon, and it exists at least in these medical handbooks on how to behave, how to be a good doctor. And on the other hand, they say doctors should be upright, uh, you know, like decent people, not exploit the patient, uh, you know, like very much uh, certain ethical standards with which even we today could identify. Now, the big question is, we have these medical manuals of ethics, were they put into practice and to what extent? And was there some sort of control? And here it becomes much more difficult because uh, I mentioned these circles and sometimes pupils reading with a master certain medical texts. And what we have is called an ijaza, so to speak, a permission. And what happened is that if a famous physician would read a book with a pupil, at the end of the book, the physician could write into the pupil's copy, this pupil of mine is an intelligent chap, and he has read this book with me, and he does master it. Now, obviously, this, this exists also in Islamic law, and this is we have a couple of examples of this for medical texts, not that many, but, I mean, a couple. And so this would... Some people have seen this as some sort of diploma, but obviously it's not like a diploma which then qualifies you to practice because in the medical marketplace, nearly everybody could practice, or so it seems. So this might have been some sort of you know, regulation, but it's not clear that this had many practical applications. The other thing is we hear about somebody called Rais al-Atiba, the chief physician, the, the, the head physician, um, in, in different sources, uh, and we know of a couple of people who fulfilled this function. And we even have some instances of uh, chief physicians kind of testing other physicians and saying, you can practice medicine and you can't. But this is a complex picture. And for certain times, there might have been more regulation and other times less regulation. But it looks like for, to a certain extent, there was some medical regulation on this level dispensed by the chief physician. But it was certainly not comprehensive as, or as comprehensive as the uh, General Medical Council is today. The other thing which we have is uh, the, the office of the market inspector, the muhtasib, as he's called in, uh, in Arabic. So hisba, market inspection, took place from the 9th century onwards. It's an old tradition which might even go back uh, to Greek antecedents. Uh, but be that as it may, there was certainly market inspection. And in certain manuals of market inspections, we read about physicians and, you know, like cuppers, people who cup, who, you know, draw blood, and other, you know, like paramedical professions being regulated within the marketplace. But again, the details of how this, uh, this happened or what what was exactly done are sketchy. So, so you have, a, you, so you study, you become a physician, you gain certain qu uh, certain qualifications. There might have been some regulations, but it was certainly not as comprehensive as it is nowadays. And this brings us 
To another point, and this is competition. So physicians within the medical marketplace, because there was no comprehensive system, competed with other practitioners, sometimes women, about whom we'll talk a little bit later, sometimes you know, like quacks or charlatans, as they would uh, label them, people who peddle their drugs and so on and so forth. So this was uh, very much, uh, this very much happened within the medical marketplace and so the regulation was not uh, comprehensive. Now some physicians were rich, we know this. Some assembled tremendously large libraries, 20,000 volumes. And you know, like one volume was much more valuable than, you know, like a book from Black Worlds is nowadays or something like that. It's not just, you know, penguin paperback. It's much more expensive to produce, you know, like a handwritten manuscript. So some of them tremendously wealthy, you know, like in the courts of the caliphs, probably certain influence on political decisions. Uh, but on the other hand, um, there must have been armies of kind of, you know, like mid-range physicians whom history largely has forgotten. And because of the nature of our sources, which focus on the famous physicians, we don't know all that much about them. Sometimes we can, you know, gain or glean certain details uh, about them. I'll give you one example. There's a Jewish physician called Al-Israeli, I mean, the Jew, basically. And um, he wrote something which in the Hebrew translation is called the ethics of the physician. Musaha um, Rofe in Hebrew. And this uh, physician says, fix your price before you treat somebody. Because, you know, like otherwise you might have trouble, you know, like getting, getting your money. So there you see somebody obviously being concerned with physicians being paid. This means that they must have relied, at least to a certain extent, on their practice to gain their income, which obviously happens today also. On the other hand, in the medical ethical literature, um, we sometimes find injunctions saying you should treat people even without, any, without receiving any money, any fee, if need be. So there's a certain tension between these two. And the details are a bit sketchy, but again, you know, like there must have been, I mean, we know of some very famous and rich physicians. Others were, you know, like kind of the middle classes of the Middle Ages, maybe. And then you have like these other more shady figures operating in the medical marketplace. We, we see all these, you know, like different physicians, you know, like low-level charlatans to high-level professionals with access to the courts of the caliphs. This beckons the question, where did they practice? Where did they you know, like offer their services. Uh, and here again, we find a whole variety. I mean, I talked metaphorically about the medical marketplace. And there was an actual medical marketplace. There were markets called souks in, the, in Baghdad and around the medieval Islamic world in which physicians offered uh, some of their services or at least certain medical professions. Others, we know, had uh, sort of surgeries at home. I mean, they received... We have accounts of patients coming to see the practitioner, the physician, the doctor within his home. And um, that must have happened quite often. On the other hand, if you were a caliph, you made sure that uh, your personal physician either lived with you or came to see you when you needed him. You know, you wouldn't uh, kind of make the trip down the road, you know, like you had the person brought to you. And obviously, where you were treated depended also on your social standing and your financial means. But one important place um, for medical practice uh, is the hospital, the Islamic hospital. And hospitals became something really 
quite novel within the medieval Islamic world and notably in 10th century, 9th and 10th century Baghdad. Now, obviously, things differ in certain periods of time, but let's just take 9th and 10th century Baghdad, so to speak, like the heyday of the you know, Abbasid Caliphate, um, and let's look at um, how hospitals became something very special, something novel within this setting. In earlier days, obviously, Christians uh, had certain shelters, overnight shelters or hospices for pilgrims. All these things existed because there were ideas of Christian charity. You should help the sick and so on and so forth. But um, often medicine was dispensed through religion for co-religionists in a religious framework. What do I mean by this? So Christians would come to a Christian monastery and got kind of monks treating Christian monks treating them and sometimes even Christian ritual played a big role you know, like you start with a confession you pray you have certain miracle accounts and so on and so forth and uh, for these earlier times largely there's a big gap between these hospices as I'd like to call them and the elite medical authors or the elite medical practitioners because in their manuals Hospitals never get mentioned. Now, by the time we come to 9th and 10th century Baghdad, we have a completely different uh, picture. So five things come together within these hospitals, which in this combination, the, the combination of these five points, for me, is unique, novel, real innovative, and important milestone in the development of the hospital in world history. So first, the first point is that there are Islamic foundations, called awqaf in Arabic, so they are foundations which have an endowment. They are financially secure. Land is given to them. I mean, these Islamic endowments, these alqaf, were actually a means to avoid the taxmen. If you didn't want the caliph to lay his dirty hands on your money, you could give it in charity to these charitable institutions, to these alqaf, these foundations, and then it, they were secure because it was charity, and then they had to be used for these charitable purposes laid down in in foundation documents. So, on the one hand, many of these hospitals were endowed with Islamic foundations. On the other hand, although they were Islamic foundations, the medicine practice in them was secular, in inverted commas, or was non-confessional. You didn't have to be a uh, Muslim to go to a hospital, at least in 10th century Baghdad. You could be a Jew or a Christian. You didn't have to be a Muslim to work in a hospital because many of the practitioners we know were Christians or Jews or from, from even some pagans, some Sabians, some star worshippers worked in hospitals or even had very prominent positions within the medical administration of the Abbasid state. So, so patients from different backgrounds, practitioners from different backgrounds, but also the medicine practice in these institutions was non-confessional because it was a medicine based on humor pathology, on Greek ideas, so the theoretical framework was scientific, and this scientific or this medical knowledge was non-religious, at least on the face of it. I mean, obviously, things sometimes change, but I mean, different confessions could partake within this, of this medical discourse, and could work in the hospitals, and in this sense, you get a medicine which was non-religious, non-confessional practice in these hospitals. The third is 
that these hospitals, the third point is that these hospitals become places of elite medical practice. So the best physicians, the physicians who write the medical manuals, who treat the caliphs, who work for the for these uh, elite of the Abbasid society, those same physicians are also directors or physicians in hospitals. And uh, that is novel. They often mention their practice, the hospital practice within medical manuals. So this is very different from let's say three, four hundred years ago, uh, three, four hundred years earlier in the Christian world. Uh, so elite medicine comes to the hospital, third point. The fourth point is something I've uh, kind of touched upon earlier. These hospitals become teaching hospitals. Teaching takes place within this clinical context uh, and um, this too is, so to speak, a, a, a novel development. And finally, Research is carried out in these hospitals. We mentioned earlier, in a, we mentioned in an earlier program, this case of Arazi wanting to know what's happening with phrenitis. Now, in this case, we don't know whether he does it in the hospital or not. But we have other quite sophisticated medical trials, and um, in some of them, Arazi says, "Ah, in the hospitals, I gleaned um, a lot of experience. Or I, I, I carried out certain tests." not only in hospitals, also in his home, but hospitals played a big role. And there's one kind of clinical trial or one, one procedure for dropsy, um, which involves, you know, like people sitting in sand or being, you know, like heated in uh, dry steam baths, uh, which he tries out and where he talks about 2,000 patients suffering from this disease. Now, obviously, if you want to get these big numbers, you basically have to have a hospital context and this is something new and so these five points you know like uh, financial security through endowment uh, second you know like secular medicine you know, like non-religious medicine being practiced in the hospitals elite medicine coming to the hospital medical teaching and medical research these five points coming together that's really innovative and this is where the islamic hospitals are kind of a shining model of innovation we have these elite institutions, these uh, hospitals, or at least institutions, which which are in you know, like where the medical elite practices. But maybe I should stre have stressed this point a bit more. These institutions, as medical charities, were set up for the poor to have access uh, to medical uh, to to medical services. So the physicians of the poor are also the physicians of the powerful to a certain extent and that happens in a medical context so if you were poor you could go to a hospital where somebody very qualified might practice and obviously this was i mean these hospitals were by more no means the only or even the first call and another element when we ask you know like the poor where did they go or how what, what about all these other physicians whom i talked about uh, these you know like uh, not so famous physicians how did they fit into the picture now obviously we know about them mostly through, mostly indirectly, because elite medical authors wrote these, you know, ethical manuals, for instance, and they complain. They complain about charlatans, they complain about women, they complain about non qualified practitioners poaching their patients. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't quite, uh, quite, quite put it like that, but you have the, in, you have the example of uh, Arazi in the 10th century. He writes a treatise on the reason why all the um, um, why all these patients turn from the best physicians towards you know, like uh, all these charlatans and uh, he he gives an example 
once he treated somebody for some sort of uh, you know like bladder stone or um, and um, and what happened is he gave all he did all the right things gave the gave the patient the right treatment uh, but it took a little a little while to get rid of these bladder stones and uh, the patient grew impatient and turned to what he calls an old woman or some sort of you know like female practitioner and that woman on, only gave him some sort of you know like generic recipe and he took this and uh, he became better not because of this recipe of that woman which wasn't very good but because arazi had given him the right uh, kind of medication it was his medication his treatment which cured this patient but again you know, like the patient was too stupid he went to this woman and so then therefore he thought that this woman actually cured him which, which wasn't the case according to arazi so we can feel a real tension a real competition and uh, you know like who is who's the legitimate practitioner who has the authority to cure this is a real debate there's another example of a christian author from the 11th century called uh, saad ibn al-hasan he also writes a medical ethical manual and he says it's a wonder that anybody gets cured at all nowadays everybody just turns to their women folk their mothers their aunts uh, you know like their their female neighbors and i don't understand you know, like everybody runs straight to these women how does anybody get cured at all and obviously he thinks you know, like the male doctors the elite doctors they are the legitimate practitioners and she paints this picture of patients running to their women and uh, this is indirect evidence but what must have happened on a large scale is that uh, you know women for instance would provide a lot of uh, medical services maybe just as they do today you know, like if you know like a husband gets ill or if a child gets ill often maybe the the woman is the first uh, you know point of call and uh, this was even more so so to speak in um, the medieval islamic society or so it would seem we've seen that there's competition between male and female practitioners now what happens on the level of patients were women treated differently from men uh, did they have access to different practitioners for instance uh, what about hospitals could they go to the hospitals they are all interesting questions now let me ask the last question first let's look at the hospitals we know of certain hospitals again one can't generalize but certain hospitals which have separate wards for male and female patients so there are separate spaces we also know this is for the hospitals we also know for instance arazi treating many many female patients there's one case where he treats a case of breast cancer and he you know like obviously in investigates the breast of a female patient there's another story in um, you know like in a literary text but i mean it reflects kind of uh, the morals of the time where you have a daughter of a rich person having a tick in her vagina and this gets infected and she suffers very greatly is at first afraid to tell her dad um then she tells her dad and her dad is embarrassed about this but in the end they get a male practitioner to treat the woman i mean he finds out the through taking the girl's history that it must have been a tick and he removes it and uh, she faints in this instance i mean exposure of uh, private parts but uh, he does this and uh, the girl is cured and everything as well so so we have cases and there are many more we are we have evidence for male physicians treating female patients and for certain conditions 
there doesn't seem to be like a separate, you know, like medical knowledge for women. I mean, obviously you have certain conditions which only occur in women. The most important uh, set um, of conditions are those uh, associated with the uh, with female reproduction or female reproductive organs in like menstruation obviously and then giving birth all the complications many women must have died in childbirth I mean we didn't have we don't have statistics but there too we find um, you know like very detailed uh, descriptions of procedures for these gynecological conditions in medical manuals written by men some of that uh, medical knowledge draws on Greek, Greek sources there's one author from Muslim Spain, Al-Zahrawi, who even develops new, like new instruments and has seems to have his own insights into uh, seems to have you know like practiced or treated women, but he also makes the remark that very few women would be willing to expose uh, their private parts. So it's a bit of a complicated picture, but um, that's kind of on the level of elite medicine. On the other end, what we have is. Uh, all these women, you know, like having what might one might call folk knowledge, you know, like this complaint of Sa'id ibn al-Hassan that the men run away to their women. And there must have been quite a bit of, you know, women getting advice from women um, about what they should do in certain cases. I mean, we have a letter, for instance, uh, um, from a mother to a daughter sending her recipe for a remedy against, uh, you know, like a, some sort of tummy upset. And the, the mother says, oh, I've written to you before. You haven't written back. What's going on? You're like the, you can see the mother being concerned about her daughter, uh, saying, oh, I'm sending you this recipe. Please write. And like, I'm worried about you. So it's an insight. It's like a, a rare document, but it's a nice or interesting document in that you see the woman giving medical advice to her daughter. That certainly happens uh, as well. In our next episode, Peter talks about the relationship between medicine, religion and magic. Peter's book, Medieval Islamic Medicine, written with Emily Savage-Smith, is now available.